This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Helpful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Marshfield and Adams are joining a growing number of Wisconsin cities that have shut down municipal wells due to concerning amounts of PFAS in their water. PFAS, also known as forever chemicals because they don't break down in nature, carry with them a slate of health effects. According to the Associated Press, Marshfield has shut down over one quarter of its wells, while Adams has shut down one of its two wells. The State Department of Natural Resources is investigating almost 100 PFAS contamination sites across Wisconsin, including wells in La Crosse, Eau Claire, and here in Madison. Only PFAS standards for surface and drinking water have been set by the DNR Policy Board, which still needs to be approved by the state legislature. There are no groundwater standards for PFAS in Wisconsin. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi is calling for an external and independent review of the racial climate across the county government. The proposed county-wide review comes after work environment assessments in the zoo and medical examiner's office produced concerning results. The results included reports of toxic work environments and racist remarks, reports the Cap Times. Earlier this month, Parisi disagreed with a Dane County Board proposal to hire a retired county judge to investigate work conditions at the Henry Vilas Zoo. Parisi instead is proposing to allocate $150,000 for hiring an external firm that will investigate county departments, including the zoo. Parisi says this approach will lead to more objective and trustworthy findings. You may have noticed more planes flying over downtown Madison recently. That's because the Dane County Regional Airport has shifted flight patterns temporarily due to construction on its main runways, as first reported by WORT News Director Sholly Pittman. This also means that areas on the north and south sides that usually see more air traffic are quieter than usual. The runways that usually handle smaller aircraft are now being used by commercial and military aircraft which would otherwise take off and land on the main runway, which runs in a north-south direction. The airport says its main runway should be fully operational again by early July. And now on to today's top stories. According to a 2016 study published in Science Advances, over 80% of Earth's population lives under some form of light pollution. Now city leaders in Madison are considering a measure to cut down on light pollution and perhaps become the world's largest dark city community through two items introduced at last week's Common Council meeting. WRT producer Nate Wuggyhout has more. The Madison Common Council is considering steps to cut down on light pollution and begin the process of labeling Madison as a dark sky city. Last week, the council introduced two related items, one a proposed ordinance that would mandate light shields, the other a proposed resolution for the city to join the International Dark Sky Association, or IDA, a group dedicated to fighting light pollution. The proposed ordinance would require new shielding for all outdoor lights, both public and privately owned. The shielding installed on top of the lamp keeps light from leaking into places it was not intended to light up. Madison District 15 Alder Grant Foster who introduced the new ordinance with District 13 Alder Tag Evers, says the idea came directly from Madison residents. So I had gotten a number of concerns shared with me by residents about uh, kind of bright lights, you know, from other properties shining in their windows, etc. And so after a number of times of sending, you know, kind of passing those complaints on um, and hearing that we, you know, in, at least in a number of those cases, it was kind of within the bounds of our of our current ordinance 
uh, and then having a conversation with Alder Evers, and he was uh, kind of working to see what we could do to reduce overall light pollution, partly coming out of the like uh, Lake Winger watershed work. Um, so the two of us really kind of just got together and did some research and, and found the Dark Sky Alliance. Under the proposed ordinance, any exterior light brighter than 500 lumens, such as a garage spotlight, must have a cover installed to direct the light towards the ground. If the light does not have this cover, then the property owner would be fined at least $25 each day until the problem is fixed. But Foster says that the purpose of the ordinance is more about educating the public than it is about catching people in the act. It'll essentially be, you know, like it is today, kind of complaint-based, and we're not going to be going out and sending people to find lights that are in violation. But what it does is, um, you know, if, if and when we get complaints from folks, then when inspectors go out, it'll, they'll have a different um, threshold for what's allowed and what's not allowed. So then if they get those kind of complaints um, and they go out and someone has a bright light that is not shielded, um, then, they will, then they'll give notice to that property owner um, and they can either install a shield or, or put a different light in. Lighting fixtures can cost anywhere from $50 to $200 per fixture to replace. Foster says that the city would not cover the costs to replace the lights. The nonprofit International Dark Sky Association, or IDA, was founded in 1988 with a goal to fight excessive use of artificial light across the world. Ashley Wilson is the director of conservation with the IDA. She says that unshielded lights are a large contributor to light pollution and help with side glow, or the sphere of light pollution that you see around cities. Wilson says that directing the light downward through shielding, however, can help cut that unused light. The amount of light that is emitted along the horizontal plane contributes more to sky glow than the amount of light that is radiated directly upward. So by shielding the light below that 90 degree angle, you are further reducing the visibility and the scale of that luminous orb above our city. And we are starting to retract that presence of sky glow closer to within our cities. And then we can start to restore natural darkness to have that balance of having lighting where we need it and um, protecting the nocturnal environment at the same time. A related resolution introduced at last week's Common Council meeting aims to set Madison on the path to join the IDA and would allow the city to officially apply to become an international dark sky community. When a city becomes a dark sky community, they can then better communicate and plan with other cities to find new ways to fight light pollution. Madison would then adopt the IDA's five principles of responsible outdoor lighting. Those five principles are that light should be useful, targeted only where needed, no brighter than necessary, used only when useful, and to use warmer color lights whenever possible. If approved, Madison would be Wisconsin's first official dark sky community, though Newport State Park in Door County is considered a dark sky area. Madison would also become the largest community in the world to be recognized as a dark sky community. Foster says that streets themselves would not be any darker than they usually are, and that the light shields would just keep the light from lighting unwanted areas. But, I mean, it won't represent, you know, the city's already been of actively, you know, swapping out for LED lights, for street lights. None of that really is impacted by it. Um, it won't generally, like, it won't be that folks will notice, oh, everything seems really dark now. It's really just about addressing lights that are more than what's needed and they're not doing their job. Both the ordinance, which mandates the light shields, and the resolution to adopt the five principles are now heading to the Building Code, Fire Code, Conveyance Code, and Licensing Appeals Board.
Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. If you've ever walked through Oldbrook Botanical Gardens, you may have sought refuge under the Royal Thai Pavilion. At 30 feet high, 40 feet long, and 22 feet wide, the pavilion features gold leaf, ornate etchings, and other designs following traditional Thai construction. Now, though, after weathering Wisconsin winters and the passage of time, the pavilion is in urgent need of repairs and improvements. For more, we turn to WORT reporter Heron Splinter. The City of Madison has one of six Thai pavilions worldwide that have been built outside Thailand. Also known as a Salah, ours was built in 2001. It was given to UW-Madison, who elected to build it in the Oldbrook Botanical Gardens under the administration of the city. It was a gift from the UW-Madison Thai Alumni Association and the Thai Royal Family for UW-Madison's support of Thai students. The Thai Alumni Association is the largest outside of the United States. That gives the building another name, the Royal Thai Pavilion, since it bears the royal seal and was dedicated by a princess. The Salah is a symbol of international cooperation. Salah are built with only wooden joints to support the structure, in indication to its unique architecture. The Salah has endured 20 Wisconsin winters, and now the time has come for repairs. Late last year, the city of Madison commissioned a report on the Royal Pavilion's condition. That report, released in mid-March, found that several parts of the buildings are in critical condition and in need of speedy repair. Gary Brown is the Director of Campus Planning and Landscape Architecture at UW-Madison. He is on the restoration team and helped with the original construction. The pavilion needs some uh, major work, especially on its roof system. Uh, so we're going to be uh, replacing the tile roof that's on there along with doing any other associated repairs, and then repairing some of the gold leaf and the glass tiles and a variety of things. As detailed in the report, the glazed ceramic tiles have cracked and flaked and even fallen off because of the intense freeze-thaw cycles that Wisconsin experiences. This has led to water leaking into the wooden structure that the tiles hang on. Jeff Epping is the director of horticulture for the Ulbrick Gardens. He was also part of the original construction. The original tiles, they they fired them at a higher temperature, if I remember, and stuff to try to get them to, to last even longer. So obviously they, they were thinking about it at the time and did what they thought was right. And uh, like I say, they've lasted a while. The roof's flashing is also in trouble. The lead sheet metal that protects the ridge and corners of the roof have been getting more and more weathered and bent. The steel nails that attach it to the wood underneath have chemically reacted with the lead and made nail holes useless in holding the metal down. The cost of the repairs is estimated to be $1.6 million, completed all in one go to keep costs down. The new ceramic roof alone will cost $315,000, this time made from clay more resilient to the weather. I asked Jeff Epping about how the project will stay true to the original design. So we, we want to do what's right. We're actually consulting with the Ministry of Fine Arts in Thailand on, on some of the repairs or all the repairs that we're making and make sure that they're happy with what we're doing, too. So, you know, it's a, it's a great relationship between the government of Thailand, the Thai Alumni Association, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and, of course, Ulbrich and the city of Madison. So we all want to um, work on this together so that everybody's happy with, uh, with all the repairs that are being made. When I asked Gary Brown, he said that the Royal Pavilion will change over time. So this is not uh, considered a historic piece or um, a piece of public artwork. 
It actually is um, a very typical kind of facility that you would see in Thailand. Um, the Thai government and the Thai family wanted to very much assure us that this, yes, it is something special, but it's also not um, something that would be uh, maintained like a piece of public artwork or a historic facility. These are these uh, salas, S-A-L-A, are actually found throughout Thailand. It's just uh, this one was created and designed to honor the Thai princes. Although the repairs are costly, it will eventually cost the city nothing to pay for them. Through an agreement made when the Royal Pavilion was constructed, UW-Madison will reimburse the city for all major repair costs. Tomorrow, there will be a public meeting on the report and the project at 6 p.m. online. Reporting for WORT, I'm Heron Splinter. With heat and humidity hitting Madison once again, it's important to remember precautions to take during the summer. For more about these precautions, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis. Madison is back to being warm, but not without feeling the moisture outside. The heat and humidity are producing a bad hair day for many people across Madison. Temperatures are currently sitting at around 78 degrees, and the dew point is at 63 degrees, making it hard for the predicted thunderstorms and showers to come through this evening. We will likely not be seeing any of the major storms that were thought to come through tonight. Although the humidity dropped from the morning, we are still feeling the muggy, sticky air. Humidity is sitting at right around 58% currently. The real field temperature is a few degrees above what we are feeling, and that is due to the humidity. Wind speeds are sitting at 13 miles per hour and are coming from the southwest. The average temperature for May 31st is 74.2 degrees, so we are sitting right above the average. With a mixture of humidity and heat, it is important that you are staying hydrated and listening to your body. If you're outdoors, make sure to take breaks inside and cool off so you don't overheat. Heat exhaustion can happen to anybody. If you're experiencing heat exhaustion, ice packs, cold baths, sports drinks, water, air conditioning, and wearing more loose clothing will help lessen the symptoms. In addition to that, the UV index has been reaching the high and very high categories. Make sure if you're outdoors, especially between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m., use sunblock or sunscreen to protect yourself from burning and even from sun poisoning. While wearing sunscreen, you can still get a tan, so don't skip out on it. As the temperatures get warmer, it's time to get in the water. If you're needing to cool off, Lake Monona and Mendota are a great place to do so. The water temperatures are still a bit low since it's early into the summer, but water temperatures today in Lake Monona reach 63 degrees Fahrenheit. If you don't want to take a dip into the lake, kayaking or going on a boat are great options as well. If you have allergies, now may be the time to stock up on some eye drops and allergy medications. Tree pollen and grass pollen have both been prominent and will continue to be the next two days. Hay fever can be caused by pollen. To avoid this, make sure that when you're coming inside from outdoors, change your clothing. Or even better, take a shower to get off all the excess pollen. Wednesday is looking to cool off with highs reaching the low 70s. Humidity should be lower, so don't be afraid to wear your hair down tomorrow. The low for Wednesday could drop down to 50 degrees overnight, and showers are possible. The limited moistures will keep showers light if we see any. With your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, Wisconsin Watch journalist Brenda Wintrode reported on an alleged toxic work environment at the Dane County Medical Examiner's Office. She reported that, according to employees, the problems stem from just two high-ranking leaders who have even cost the department contracts with other counties in Wisconsin. 
Winfrode spoke with WORT producer Nate Buggyhout earlier today about her story. All right. And so we have all of these people, seems like a large number of people quitting and a lot of uh, unhappiness. What's happening over there? Why did you name your article a toxic work environment? Right. So about 12 current and former employees spoke with me both on the record and on background, meaning that we um, allowed them to speak anonymously because they feared retaliation from their current bosses. Um, and they, are, they told me that they are um, experiencing or have experienced bullying, yelling, and insults um, on a regular basis. Um, there were several anecdotes that we can break down as we as we just as we talk, but um, basically a pretty unpleasant environment where they were uh, incredibly stressed out and again afraid to even speak but felt they had to. And the reason that they they felt prompted to speak out at this point was because um, one of the people that they say has been the source of the yelling and the screaming and the insults, um, former director of operations Barry Ehrman, was rehired as a limited-term employee, which means that he doesn't work a full year, um, as interim administrator. And they just couldn't believe he was back after he retired in January. So they were all very concerned and um, wanted to talk about what's been going on for a long time. And then all of this has sort of transferred over to county contracts as well with other counties uh, taking in some responsibilities. What can you sort of tell me about that? Yeah, that is more of the... um the bullying, raised voice, um, arguing in frustration um, category. I did not hear reports from other counties of misgendering or racism. Um, and I heard that from um, the medical examiner up in La Crosse. Um, he said that there was a time where they were going through a transition. And I believe their uh, former medical examiner had died. And um, Barry Ehrman was brought in to oversee their operation. And it just didn't go well. Um, and Tim Kendall, the, the medical examiner there, told me, you know, things got testy. And it got really uncomfortable for him so much so that he went to his county administrator and said, you know what, this we've got this. We don't need Dane County. Let's do it on our own. And um, just paraphrasing there. So I also spoke with Jeff Jansen. So Jeff Jansen oversaw Brown, Door, and Oconto as the interim medical examiner during the time when those organizations were trans, uh, transitioning and starting up a uh, relationship with the Dane County Medical Medical Examiner's Office. And um, yeah, that didn't go well either. Um, Jeff Jansen estimated he had about 15 deputy medical examiners working between those three offices during that time. And he was only there for a short time. But after he left, he said all of them were gone. They they all left because of Dane County. And I confirmed with him. I said, did they tell you they left because of what was going on with Dane County and the relationships there? And he said, yes, they didn't like the way they were being treated. Um, they felt they were being disrespected and they weren't being taken seriously as professionals. And they all had um, a national accreditations for um, doing their job. And then what did Ehrman say when you reached out to him about this al- right. about these allegations? 
Yeah, so we reached out to um, Barry Ehrman and also to Dr. Rogalska, who uh, denied all allegations of yelling, bullying, uh, misgendering, any intentional misgendering. They said when they did misgender Dr. Breslauer, they apologized to them, um, and uh, Dr. Rogalska denied any uh, making any racist comments to Dr. Rajkumar. Uh, and we also reached out to Dr. Tranquita, who had been the chief medical examiner during um, the time from, you know, the inception of Dr. of um, Barry Ehrman being the director of operations. He's actually the one that put him in that position. Um, and many employees told us that Dr. Tranquita knew full well that this was going on and um, kind of just sat by and didn't do anything about it. Uh, well, Dr. Tranquita responded to that, that he has received complaints about many people in the office, including Barry Ehrman and Dr. Rogalska, and he did address them and investigate them and take the necessary actions. Now, you should also know that in 2020, the um, em- Division of Employee Relations and the Office of Equity and Inclusion did do a uh, investigation into these complaints and they interviewed the employees and staff and employees and staff told me that they complained to during this investigation they shared everything that that they were concerned about the the yelling and the bullying um from ermin and rogalska and dr tranquita's idleness and and what they and they didn't get really much back they didn't they didn't feel like they anything was resolved or there were no action items or here's what we're going to do to prevent this from happening again and Brenda we're sort of coming up against the clock here do you have just any final thoughts anything that we didn't get to that you'd like to talk about um, I think it's important for people to know that the county is investing in recruiting and hiring and training all of these employees and um, it would be interesting to see in the future what uh, some of the turnaround is on um, especially the pathologists because the county does have a budget for five pathologists, but um, my reporting revealed that they have never had all five positions filled at one time. I've been talking with Brenda Wintrode, the former reporter with Wisconsin Watch, who wrote the new article for Wisconsin Watch on the alleged toxic work environment in the Dane County Medical Examiner's Office. You can read Brenda's full story online at wisconsinwatch.org. She also just recently started a new job with the Baltimore Banner. So, Brenda, congratulations on the new job, and thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Happy to do it, Nate. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Our Faith Communities travels to the Medina Mosque and Community Center. Wildlife Weekly shares the ups and downs of blackbirds. And Radio Astronomy detects a Mars quake of major magnitude. So now we'll take a quick break and check it on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. The practice of religion is intensely private but can also be very public. 
People who may be deeply devoted may rarely share their experience of their religion, and as a result, we know little about their beliefs. WRT's 6 o'clock news features short portraits of the diverse religious institutions in our area in a series called Our Faith Communities, produced by David Ahrens. This is part one of his report about the Medina Mosque and Community Center. I grew up in a home that was Jewish, but largely non-observant. As a child, I was drawn to the mystery of Hebrew prayer, which I didn't understand. Later in life, I had questions of faith. One quarter of Americans say they do not identify with any religion. I assume in our area, the number is higher, and within the Wart listener community, higher still. But our friends, co-workers, and relatives are among the faithful, even if they may not talk about it. Perhaps these short programs will give us an understanding of the faith communities around us. I admit I didn't know how deeply America's 20-year wars in the Middle East and the Near East had affected my feelings, my response to Muslims, and my ideas about Islam. For 20 years, the words Islam and Muslim have become more commonly linked with terrorism than with religion or faith or people in the media and in public conversation. Yet I know that there is no real connection between the most popular Western images of Islam and the faith practiced by its two billion adherents. Can I get a sense of what is real and important to the faithful? The Dina Community Center on the West Beltline, which has housed a mosque for over 20 years, When I attended the afternoon prayer in the week before Ramadan, the hall was tightly filled with hundreds of men. Women sat in a separate room. The men stood closely together in straight lines, their shoulders almost touching, but leaving enough room to bow down. Almost all of the men were Arabic or East Asian, with the exception of the Iman, who is from the Gambia in West Africa. All services begin with the Adan, or call to prayer. The Adan is recited or sung by the Mudadin five times a day before each prayer session. Each line of the prayer is recited twice. In English, it says, Allah is greatest. I bear witness that there is no deity but Allah. I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Hasten to the prayer. Hasten to the best of deeds. Prayer is better than sleep. Allah is greatest. There is no deity but Allah.
after the Adhan, the Imam chanted a brief prayer with the congregation and then began his sermon. The focus of the sermon, spoken in Arabic and English, is on the importance of Ramadan and particularly on fasting during the Holy Month. There are three main things that somebody should focus in the month of Ramadan. One is fasting, of course. It's a month of fasting. Second is Shahru Qiyam. It's a month of prayers, night prayers. It's a month of the Quran. It's a month and you know that it's a part of the Sunnah of the Prophet that he will he performed Taraweeh three times and then he stopped doing it. And Umar brought that to life. Umar did not initiate bringing people together in the masjid and making them pray Taraweeh. He limited the reward of performing Salah in the masjid with your Imam, with the masjid that you're close to. He said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, if you pray night prayers, with your Imam in the morning from Ramadan, till the Salah is over, you have the reward of fasting the whole entire, entire night. It's going to be challenging, it's going to be late, you're going to be working, but it's a month of opportunities. It's a month of competitions, but it's a month of strife. It's a month that you should offer the best you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you or if we do, He will make it easy for us. Those who strive in my path, I will guide them. All you want is guidance. All you want is guidance in your deen, guidance to reach to the best in your life, guidance to reach to Jannah with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah to guide us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easy for us to fast, prayer, recite the Quran. It's a month of giving, it's a month of charity, it's a month of feeding. And you can you can pick anyone. It's all going to be part of part of giving. Muhammad After his sermon, I talked with Iman Jalo about the meaning of the Islamic faith and its importance to its adherence. We'll broadcast the interview tomorrow night. This has been David Ahrens reporting for WORT News. Summer means birds are bountiful across Wisconsin, and one of the more numerous types are blackbirds. And while some, such as Wildlife Weekly contributor Jackie Sandberg, welcome the arrival of these birds, others see them as a yearly nuisance. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg tells us all about these divisive flyers. to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I thought it would be fun to talk about red-winged blackbirds. Now, it's the time of year where red-winged blackbirds are all breeding here in the state of Wisconsin and all around the U.S., actually, because they are year-round breeders in most of our 50 states. It's a species that we see very commonly, but sometimes people don't really notice them until they get really aggressive. And I'm sure I might be, you know, talking about this and you've all been thinking, hmm, have I ever experienced a bird swooping at my head? Well, chances are it was probably a red-winged blackbird. They are very mean, very aggressive, and it's not just people they defend against, it's also other animals. So sometimes you might be watching a hawk in your backyard and noticing this little bird swooping around and harassing this giant bird, you know, 50 times its size. Well, that's probably the red-winged blackbird or other of the blackbird species. They are tiny little birds that have just the greatest attitude, uh, just angry and just, oh, they're just so funny. We have a female red-winged blackbird that's in care right now at the Wildlife Center. And so I thought it would be fun to talk about, you know, what their species does here and what people have experienced with blackbirds, uh, because there's really some controversy about the species where a lot of people think of them as nuisance birds. So the blackbirds that are here in North America, there's actually five main species that we talk about. Uh, the red-winged blackbird is probably the most studied and the most abundant bird of the Icterid family, so the Icteridae. But then we also have rusty blackbirds, which are pretty rare to see, although we do get them through our area here in Wisconsin and in Madison. But we also sometimes see the brewer's blackbird and the yellow-headed blackbird and a tricolored blackbird. Now, I really like yellow-headed blackbirds. I think they're super cool, but they're found in kind of marshy, wet areas. And the brewer's blackbird is really hard to differentiate from some of your other blackbird species. But generally, we think about habitat and some other small key characteristics to help identify what species is where. Now, red-winged blackbirds, very widely distributed, but generally liking to breed in open wetland areas. But they also are found in a lot of strange spots, like I've seen them breeding in the middle of the median of a highway. Or you might find them in some sort of suburban habitat where there's pasture land or fields or something. Anywhere there's probably some grass area. So long, tall grass seems to be kind of their favorite spot. Now that causes some problems in fields because uh, a lot of farmers might think that they are nuisance birds because blackbirds are one of the types of species that flock in huge, huge groups. And so you can see thousands of different types of mixed blackbirds even when they're together in the spring and the fall migrations. Now, while that's great, you might have red-winged blackbirds, you might have grackles, you might have cowbirds, you might have a whole bunch of other of those species together in a big flock. But if you end up being one of the people that have a roost site or a tree that is maybe a favorite for your blackbirds, and that's where they like to roost, sit, stay during the migratory period, they, they are known to continually use the same spots sometimes year after year. Now, that's great and all, but it does create some sort of conflict with humans in, in some ways. There are diseases that birds have that can be transmitted to others. And, and sometimes if you're living in a site where there are a lot of birds present, you have to worry about their you know, bodily fluids and coming in contact or close contact with people. So when I think of blackbirds, I think about the feces or the droppings and the high volume of it that actually is unfortunately uh, going to be in that one location. And so something that's talked about in the literature is histoplasmosis. And that's an infection that's caused by a fungus, the histoplasma fungus. And it can be found, especially in large groups of birds, including the blackbird families. And so, you know, if you're living in an area where there's 
there's a big roost of them, the droppings are everywhere or in your own close contact. If you breathe that fungal spore in and it lives in the environment pretty well, you could end up getting it. And it's not something that is commonly found, but I would say the eastern half of the U.S. is where it's most prevalent. And again, it would have to be at a spot where there are large roosts of blackbirds. So it's something to think about. You know, it is definitely a fungal disease that does affect people. And then we also see that there are depredation permits available, or even actually in some states, including Wisconsin, there's actually no restrictions if they are causing a nuisance on, for example, your property. So There is an authorization to remove wild animals that cause damage or nuisance in Wisconsin. And generally it requires like written application, but not in the case where there's an exemption, which for it just kind of seems strange to me, but blackbirds are in those species. So any bird causing depredation under what's called NR 1205 in Wisconsin is considered legal to be able to remove or destroy, which is what they use in the actual verbiage. So the types of animals that you can, you know, I guess remove are ones that are not considered protected wild animals. They're not threatened. They're not endangered. And then there's some general grants for them. So like you obviously couldn't remove a hawk's nest that was on your property. You know, that's going to be illegal. They're protected by the Migratory Bird Species Act. But you could go ahead and decide you want to start trapping birds like grackles. Uh, Red-winged blackbirds would be another one. House sparrows and starlings, those are invasive species. But uh, it is. It does say that in NR 1205 that it's the very statement says the Natural Resources Board finds that unlimited shooting or trapping of cowbirds, crows, grackles, house sparrows, monk parrots, starlings, and red-winged blackbirds is necessary when causing depredation. So you don't need to have a permit or a waiver or anything to unfortunately shoot or trap those birds when they are committing or about to commit some sort of depredation on agricultural crops, livestock, ornamental or shade trees, or if it's constituting a health hazard or other nuisance. Uh, Like I mentioned, the histoplasmosis could be one reason. So, you know, obviously the take period is there. There are general suggestions about when that should occur. Usually we try not to do it during the breeding season because obviously then we get orphan babies into rehabilitation if there is a nuisance group of blackbirds that's being trapped and then the parents end up, you know, being killed and then they can't go back to their babies to be able to feed them. So something that we try to mention, like if you're in one of those situations, you you have a lot of blackbirds on your property and they are a nuisance, definitely try to consider the time period of when that's happening so that we aren't leaving orphans behind because obviously that's not very ethical to let them starve to death. And so, yeah, I mean, we understand that it is the law, but trying to mitigate that for rehabilitation activities. Also, just want to share that red-winged blackbirds are pretty cool species. They are actually one of the most well-studied for defensive territory behavior. And I thought that was um, pretty neat when I was in college, kind of learning how those different behaviors affect their ability to breed and what their species does. The males actually are all black and they're beautiful, but they have those great patches on their wings that are red and then kind of like an orangish yellow. And they will flare up when they're doing some sort of territory song. It's called a song spread. And so you kind of think of it as like stop and go lights, but bright red means I'm really, really angry and orangish yellow might mean okay, kind of medium strength angry. And then if they are not showing their wing patches, which they can control, then maybe they're a new male entering another male's territory or they're trying to be inconspicuous. Or if they're not showing it, they could actually lose their territory. So it's the way that they kind of defend and then also attract females and 
And there's so many different studies out there that show like what kind of call do they use in alongside their wing patches. And they will definitely just, uh, they'll, they'll show them off if they think you're getting too close to their nests. So, you know, if you're doing any sort of depredation, you may get attacked by red winged blackbirds. So definitely keep that in mind. And then uh, also the females, which are really cool. They do some singing and they seem to be the type of species where they, they're mostly monogamous, but there are a lot of groups that actually have just one male on a territory with multiple females that they're partnering with. So, you know, if you are trapping a cowbird and, or excuse me, trapping a red-winged blackbird and you trap the male, you know, that might be the only male for a territory of like 12 females uh, so that a new male would have to come in and occupy that territory. So kind of interesting. But they are really interesting birds, even though they are considered nuisance for a lot of people. Uh, so it just kind of depends on where you live, what kind of habitat is surrounding your house or uh, what state you're in. But they are definitely a species that, you know, you could go either way. Either you love red-winged blackbirds because they're so cool or you hate them because they cause a lot of problems. I'm personally on the side of loving them because I think they are, to me, like one of the first signs of spring. And I love hearing their vocalizations. Uh, they're just really complex and beautiful and kind of just unique. You can always hear it and just be like, yeah, that's a red-winged blackbird. So our female in rehabilitation is uh, definitely with us for a little while. She's in cage rest right now, uh, recovering from being hit by car. Uh, so we really hope that she'll be able to pull through and get to our outdoor pre-release enclosures so that we can get her back to her territory so that she does still have a chance to breed during this season. Hopefully you enjoyed today's segment, learning about red-winged blackbirds. Thank you for listening here on WORT, and this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Melissa Morris takes us on a trip to Mars to explore canyons, mountains, and the earthquakes, or what are more appropriately called Marsquakes, around the Red Planet. Maybe you've heard of or even experienced an earthquake, but have you ever heard of a Marsquake? Welcome to Radio Astronomy, everybody. My name is Melissa Morris, and today we will be talking about the biggest quake ever observed on another planet. And that planet isn't just any other planet, it's Earth's red neighbor, Mars. Now, Mars is a pretty wild planet to begin with. Sure, it's pretty close to the Earth and super duper red, but do you know that it contains both the solar system's tallest mountain and the solar system's largest canyon? Let's start by just talking about this mountain, named Olympus Mons. This mountain is also a huge volcano that stands roughly 14 miles tall. That's two and a half times the size of Mount Everest. A typical commercial airplane flies at 36,000 feet above sea level. This is only half the height of Olympus Mons. And what about that huge canyon? Named Valles Marineris, this canyon puts our own Grand Canyon to shame. The Grand Canyon is 277 miles long, which is roughly the distance between Madison and Minneapolis. At its deepest, it reaches just over a mile deep. 
Now, let's talk about Valles Marineris. This canyon on Mars is a whopping 2,500 miles long. That's roughly the distance between Los Angeles and New York City. This canyon stretches across one-fifth of the entire surface of Mars. It also reaches nearly four and a half miles deep at its deepest location, over four times as deep as the Grand Canyon. With Mars having both the solar system's deepest and largest canyon and the solar system's biggest and tallest mountain, we can infer that Mars has a lot of geological activity going on. So it's perhaps not too surprising that we detect a quake on its surface. This quake happened on May 4th, 2022 and was recorded by the InSight Mars lander. This lander arrived on Mars towards the end of 2018 and since then has been helping scientists learn about our red neighbor's tectonic activity and interior makeup. With its robotic ear to the ground in search of a seismic wave passing through the planet, InSight can give scientists precise measurements of the planet's activity levels and has so far recorded over 1,300 Mars quakes. This newest quake, however, was by far the largest, coming in at a magnitude 5. Compared to the quakes we see on Earth, this is fairly medium-sized, but according to NASA, it is close to the upper limit of what scientists were hoping InSight would find. Estimates of the original location of the Mars quake indicate that it began in a region known as Cerberus Fossae, which is located over 620 miles away from the lander itself. Cerberus Fossae are two huge fissures that run next to one another and are located on a fault where the ground shifts fairly frequently. The shifting ground is likely what caused the huge Mars quake to begin with. Now, quakes in general are very useful to scientists who are hoping to learn more about what the interior of an object looks like. For example, here on Earth, the only reason we know anything about the various layers that exist deep below Earth's crust is thanks to measurements made using earthquakes. You see, when a quake happens on the surface of the planet, it creates seismic waves which travel through the planet itself and interact with the different layers of the planet's interior in different ways. The seismic waves then reflect back towards the surface of the planet, where scientists can measure them and see how they moved through the planet to begin with. By observing a huge quake on Mars, scientists can learn about the various layers inside of Mars, which can help them better understand why it looks the way it does, how it formed, and how active it really is. Now, scientists are still analyzing the seismic signal generated by this giant Mars quake to see what they can learn from it, and they are very optimistic about the results. So, make sure you keep your ear to the ground to hear a little bit more about Earth's big red neighbor. Before we wrap up today's radio astronomy, I've got a few fun reminders for you. First, we will be holding a public observing night at the Washburn Observatory this Wednesday, weather permitting. Observing is scheduled to begin around 9pm and go until 11pm. Feel free to show up anytime between those two times for a look at this awesome telescope. 
You can find weather updates by following us on Twitter at at Washburn underscore OBS. Also, this summer, Universe in the Parks is starting up again. Astronomers from UW-Madison will be traveling to state parks all across Wisconsin to talk about space and show off some of our favorite objects through telescopes. As you plan your camping trips this summer, be sure to see if there's a Universe in the Parks program wherever you're going. That's all for Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and I'm wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Lee. Your reporter tonight was Heron Splinter. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors David Ahrens, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Buggy helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.